curator will see you now. Are you looking for conversations with some of the hottest names in horror today, like Eric LaRocca, Haley Piper, Clay McLeod Chapman, Laurel Hightower, Jamie Flanagan, and Allie Wilkes, along with indie horror superstars like Brianna Morgan and Joe Coach? Then you should tune in to Terrifying Tomes of Terror with your host, the curator of horror, Chance Forshee, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Well Red Beard. Uh, I appreciate you being here. I'm back full time on my channel. I would love for you to come over and subscribe. Just search Well Red Beard on YouTube. Um, I delve deep into horror. I've spent the last three years uh, reading a ton of independent small press horror. There's treasure to be found there, and I go out there and find it for you. I, I'm not afraid to tell you the books that aren't great while telling you the books that are great. I don't break hearts or hurt feelings, but if a book doesn't work for me, I will tell you that and I'll tell you why. I'm on a new mission now to, to go back and dig into some great horror from the 80s and 90s. I'm working my way through Robert McCammon's books. I'm going to look at all of Peter Straub's work. I'm going to do uh, Brian Keene. I've got aspirations to go back and do J.F. Gonzalez. A lot of the greats, so you have a good idea of where to start. I have a video up for J.F. Gonzalez's Survivor, so you can see what all the fuss is about. I recently read Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian, so you can see what all the fuss is about. Uh, I just want you to come over and subscribe. I'm trying to grow the thing. I appreciate you taking a look at it. This is Well Read Beard. I hope you're enjoying all your books as much as I am. If not, you're reading the wrong damn books. Hi, I am Erica T. Worth, author of the indigenous literary horror uh, novel White Horse, which is out now with Flatiron Macmillan. And it is about Carrie, who is an urban Indian woman who loves heavy metal and loves horror, but despises her mother because she believes that her mother abandoned her when she was two days old. And when her, uh, her cousin Debbie discovers an ancient bracelet of her mother's and uh, Carrie touches the bracelet, um, her mother's ghosts begin to haunt Carrie and a monster invades her dreams and Carrie decides that she needs to find out what happened to her mother after all um, and some of the inspiration for this novel is urban Indian life in Denver Colorado and it's also just you know my love of heavy metal and horror which was something where I went to school in Idaho Springs people loved and it's also a love song to old Denver Horror on Main, a new weekend convention for the horror community. There are plenty of horror cons to choose from, but most only offer the genre as writers and actors. We explore all the shadows within horror entertainment. From idea to product, there are many people behind the scenes, including writers and actors, but also artists, publishers, directors, and composers, and we're bringing them to you, as well as contests, movies, panels, podcasters, and much, much more. We've been going to conventions for over 20 years and are changing up the little things to make the big picture amazing. Join us Memorial Day weekend 2023 in Hunt Valley, Maryland. Come to the block party and meet your new neighbors. See HorrorOnMain.com for details. I told my husband that, you know, because I, I was a big Anne Rice fan and then she passed away and now I, I will never have any new Anne Rice. So some of my other favorite authors, I'm purposefully not reading, yeah. reading some of their books. My husband calls it my death stash. 
so that <laughs> when they pass away, I'll still have books by them. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's fair because there's, you know, I I remember when I hit the end with uh, Kurt Vonnegut, like, okay, well, there's, there's nothing else. <laughs> Mark, do you have any questions before we start? Um, when it, when will this be out? Preview will come out November fourth. The episode will come out November seventh. Okay, so when I talk about Lucid, I'll talk about it as if it's already out. Okay. What's the date on that one? It comes out on the 30th. Okay, that's what I thought, but I couldn't find it. All right, gotcha. The the publisher's not doing a pre-order this time, he decided. Mm. I've heard uh, positive things about that, though. I I mean, I think it's all algorithm stuff that I don't entirely understand, but... I, I, you know, for smaller independent authors that I, I've heard that not doing a pre-order can actually benefit you. So he decided to go that route. And mm-hmm. the 30th is my birthday. It's my husband's birthday and oh. it's our wedding. Are you shitting me? <laughs> it's a I day. I, I don't think I knew that about you. That's hilarious. Welcome to Dead Headspace. I'm your host, Patrick R. McDonough, joined always by my co-host, Brennan LaFaro. Say hello, Brennan. Hello, everybody. And today we're joined by the author of Lucid and the Advantage. Um, also, Where the Dead Go to Die, co-written by Aaron Drys, one of my personal favorites, Mr. Mark Allen Gunnell. Say hello, Mark. Hello out there in the world. Now... I don't think Brennan correct me right away if I'm wrong. I don't think we asked this question. What got you into horror, Mark? Um, I don't know. I would almost say I was born into it. I, I grew up in a very permissive household where I never really had any limits on what I watched or read. And I have a I have a memory of watching the original Salem's Lot miniseries when it first aired. Um, I was five. But I vividly remember watching it with my, my family. And then I think I was around 10 when my mother let me watch some of The Exorcist. Um, and I think I feel like that stuff stuck with me in a way that um, other stuff I watched did not. And I just kind of became addicted to it. And so when I started reading, that's what I gravitated toward. That's really interesting because we... We talk to so many authors who it almost seems like their trajectory is formed because uh, they their parents are permissive or their households are permissive in terms of reading. You know, it's a book. How bad could it be? But maybe almost kind of stifling in terms of, of movies, whereas you kind of you are allowed both. And I wonder if you did start coming to like literature a little bit later because you were allowed to kind of get your horror fix uh, in a, you know, more accessible visual medium. It's possible. I also grew up in a family where there, there weren't a lot of books in the house. Um, but you know, movies and I used to, cause I'm old and I used to go to the little theater in town and watch all the new Friday, the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street and Halloween movies back when they would let a 12 year old in to see those movies and not ask any questions. Um, 
So I was just seeing all of those. And, um, and really it was, it was, I discovered reading because I just kept seeing all these Stephen King movies and I'm like, I want to go to the source. And um, I started going to the public library and just once I got into reading that just took over everything. And I wanted to start telling stories once I was reading stories. And um, so, you know, I, I, I started with the movies that led to the books, which just ignited my love of story as a reader and a writer. Let's pause on Stephen King right there. I have a question for you both. I want Mark to answer first and Brennan. If Stephen King, not Carrie, because that's an obvious, if there's no Carrie movie, then, you know, obvious that his, in my opinion, it's obvious that his career wouldn't be what it is today. But with the success of that, all the other movies, do you think if he didn't have so many movies adapted from his books that he would be even doing it today? Do you think anyone would know his name? Um, there's obviously no way to know that, but I'm curious. Let's play theoretics here. Mark, what do you think? I mean, I feel like in the literary world, he would still be known because he's just that good. Um, known known like Lawrence. Sorry to cut you off. Known like um, known in the sense of like uh, William Blatty or, or Lawrence, not Har, but Lawrence Block, that kind of known or we're talking about globally. I think- I think he would. I think he would still have become a bestseller. I think people who read would still love him. The thing about him is, with the movies, people who don't read know who he is. I mean, there are people who are consistently on the bestsellers list that the average person who doesn't read still wouldn't recognize their name. But I always say Stephen King is the only writer I know of who I don't ever remember a time when I didn't know who he was. Like from my earliest memories, because like I said, one of my yeah. earliest memories watching Salem's Lot, I've always known him. And the movies, I think, have given him that so that he, whether you read or not, his name is just universally known. And I think the movies did give him that in a way that even if he had remained a best-selling author, he wouldn't have been known to that level. Sure. Um, for me, uh it was Stephen King's it that scared the shit out of me. And I don't remember this. It came out when I was one. Um, but my parents told me that I, when it was on, I would sometimes watch it. And uh, I know Mark, you probably don't know this town, but I grew up in this city called Brockton and it was not a nice place. Um, not as bad in the nineties, but not a good place even then. And my, my parents were telling me that, they were pushing me in my stroller and there was this little rubber toy clown like right near one of the sewer grates like in the film or book and um i just i didn't like clowns for a while i know it's because of that movie um so for as long as i can remember stephen king and that movie it was always just the movie i've i've seen it plenty of times since since you know it's whatever but yeah I, i agree with that uh, Brennan, what are your thoughts? I, I would actually agree with what Mark said, where uh, Mark, you kind of said that he would be writing and he would turn out, you know, that body of work, but just not necessarily be a household name. Um, I I like to think that with, you know, obviously we, we think of the early movies like The Shining, you know, the Salem's Lot the, the older one is, you know, fondly remembered for some of those really horrifying scenes, but also, I mean, there have been a lot of adaptations that are just total crap and it doesn't seem to bother him. Um, 
and with those rose-colored glasses, I, I, I like to think that if without the, you know, success and, you know, immersion of all the, all the adaptations that he's put out, that his body of work really wouldn't be that different. Um, as he's said himself in so many different ways, uh, he writes cause he has to, you know, not because he is looking for the next big, you know, Hollywood adaptation. Yeah. And Peter Straub told us that he King told him, Stephen told him before that he would be on the <laughs> an overpass with a rifle. If he couldn't be right in uh, connect the dots there. So uh, <laughs> Brandon, do you have a, have a follow-up question not related to what i just brought up but whatever whatever pathway you want to go down now with mark yeah and mark you were talking about you know kind of turning to a love of reading and then from there turning to a love of or 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 a desire to write and to tell stories and you know i i it, it makes me think of something that you know joe lansdale said on this show before that he I'm putting words in his mouth, but he's, he said that, you know, he doesn't necessarily consider himself a writer so much as a storyteller. And when I read your work, I get that same kind of vibe. And I wonder if I'm totally off base or if that's kind of how you think of yourself. Um, I mean, I I do often refer to myself as a storyteller um, because I mean, that's what got me into it. When I discovered reading, I mean, I, I love movies. I still love movies, but books were such an immersive experience for me. Um, I mean, I really got caught up in the voice of the book, the just the entire world that was created. And when I fell in love with that, I wanted to do that. I wanted to tell stories where people could get caught up in it and immerse themselves in it. And um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, writing is sort of a mechanical thing. Storytelling to me is the heart of it. Um, storytelling is why you learn to write so you can tell the story. Um, so you learn the mechanics, so you can do the thing that you really want to do, which is just introduce this new world to readers for them to get caught up in, if that makes any sense. No, absolutely. And I think that, you know, for, uh, (laughs) if there are listeners who are saying, uh, no, actually that doesn't make any sense. I, what I would tell them to do is I, I would tell them to pick up uh, this book, Twilight at the Gates, because I think it's just such a great introduction to your fiction because it is just chock full and i i don't know off the top of my head maybe you do but there uh, how many stories are in there but it's a lot and they're you know they range from a page or two to you don't usually exceed like the 10 page mark they're all just short little slices absolutely packed full of imagination grab you by the shirt collar storytelling um and Obviously, you can tell just by the title, but a lot of it is the type of, you know, yank the rug out from under you, play with the audience, play with the narrative, play with the audience's expectations of the Twilight Zone. So I I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how that kind of impacted your storytelling in any way, shape or form. Oh, I often tell people that the first and maybe biggest influence on me as a storyteller is the Twilight Zone. Um, when I was a kid, I grew up watching both the original, uh, Rod Serling and the eighties incarnation. Um, and I was just in love with those. I loved the, I love that they were built on this foundation of 
It's our world. It's a world we recognize, but things are just slightly off kilter. Um, and that to me is what really gets me about horror. It's like you ground me in a world I recognize, but then you, you just introduce that little wrinkle that makes things just slightly askew. And then things start kind of sliding off from there. Um, so I, I definitely, especially in my short fiction, I feel like that influence is very obvious to anyone who reads me. Um, I love the kind of storytelling that I learned from The Twilight Zone. Um, and with that collection, Twilight at the Gates, the publisher specifically asked me because he had read some of my work, you know, if I could do a whole collection of stories that sort of had that feel. And I'm like, that, that's not going to be a problem for me because that's almost all of them. Um, but it, it, was, it was nice to really put that in the forefront and just acknowledge that influence. Because, um, I mean, I like to do those kinds of stories with a modern twist, uh, with more of a queer uh, slant. And I think that, you know, brings sort of a classic feel, but something new and fresh at the same time. Do you think that's why horror is so um, magnetizing to people in the LGBTQ community or maybe um, folks that are neurodivergent or, or other folks that kind of just feel like they're weird or not, quote unquote, normal, how they were raised societally to be brought up. Do you think that's, cause I'm just thinking th that just kind of dawned on me now. I mean, maybe we've covered that before, but I'm not going to remember over 170 episodes. What the fuck we talked about. <laughs> not in all of them. <laughs> uh, I, I definitely think so. Um, I've been watching on um, shutter. They have the documentary series queer for fear. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, they talk a lot about, you know, what draws queer people to horror and, you know, I think there is this feeling of being the outcast. I knew the work of Clive Barker and Anne Rice that I discovered around the same time, what they did was they turned the monster into the hero. Like if you read Cabal, which became the film Nightbreed. Mm -hmm. or the, I love that you know, movie. So crazy, man. The vampire books by Anne Rice. Like they take the monsters and they are the ones who are heroic and who are beautiful and who are misunderstood. And society is the one that's trying to demonize them. And for queer people, we can definitely relate to that. Um, so, you know, I enjoyed all that. And as a queer person who loved horror growing up, especially in the eighties, you know, I didn't, I didn't see myself reflected much in the genre. Hmm. So, um, you know, it was a huge thing to me in the nineties when Clyde Barker, like publicly came out and, um, and then I discovered the work of Poppy Z bright. Mm. And I realized, you know, you can't, you can take that genre and you can introduce queer elements into it so that, you know, a new generation of queer horror fans can find works where they are reflected, where they are represented, where they can be, you know, as involved in the genre as everyone else. So, um, you know, and I feel like now, not necessarily so much in the big major publishers, but in the small press, you're seeing a proliferation of wonderful queer writers of all different types who are really making a, a big contribution to the genre. Do you feel, cause you're, you said old, but you're not old, you're older, but do you feel like you have any duty or responsibility? Cause like, 
as a straight white guy, I don't ever think of that stuff. And I never would if I didn't talk to as many people as Brandon and I talked to um, that are all kinds of different walks of life. But um, all these things are kind of just dawning me as we talk about this, probably because, Mark, you and me talk about this a lot privately. And um, it's just got me thinking, like, do you ever feel kind of a, a responsibility? Because we talked about um, the younger generation of, of gay uh, people and how their some are being judgmental and, and, and uh, really just taking for granted what people before them, the generation before them had to do to make life easier for them. Um, I do feel that somewhat, I mean, I, you know, I know some wonderful younger queer people who are doing great things, but I do meet those who, like, I, I saw a, um, a post that a, a younger queer person made about the Mark Patton documentary, Screen Queen, and they just, you know, they didn't get it. Why was he whining? One movie couldn't have ruined his career because they have no concept of living in a time where even the idea that you might be gay could ruin your career, not just as an actor in many fields. Um, so, you know, I, I do think it's important to, to learn your history and to understand what the older generation went through to give you whatever freedom you now enjoy, um, because it was not just handed to us and it's still something we have to fight for. And I mean, I don't, when I write, I don't think of it necessarily as a responsibility because I write what comes naturally to me, but I am always conscious of the younger me who was reading books and hungering to see people like me in the horror books I loved. And I mean, I would search for anything. Um, mostly I came up with what were really like erotic vampire novels with queer characters more than horror. But I remember that hunger for that. And so I am happy to be providing work along with so many other great authors to give people that sort of representation, seeing themselves reflected that way. That's great. That's really great. And um, I should have one more point and it's fading away. <laughs> Brennan, can you pick up? I'll come back. Uh, no, I, you know, what it made me think of is, and in, in levels of importance, you know, I don't mean to trivialize any of what you just said, but it reminds me of the idea of knowing your roots in horror so that even if you're writing something more modern, you can still kind of understand where the genre begins uh, in terms of understanding, you know, if you are a, a queer person, what the history of just everything surrounding that is so that you can kind of understand the modern sensibility, I suppose, in, in context. Um, no question there, really. I just, I, I think it's kind of important to put an underline under, you know, kind of what you just said. I remembered what it was. Um, Led Zeppelin, are arguably, in my opinion, the greatest rock band ever. Um, yeah, I'm including the Beatles in that. And they, to my knowledge, they're all straight. I don't know. They might not, some of them might not be, but, they, I know for a fact because I, I, I do research on things I love and that's one of them's Led Zeppelin and I know that they were not allowed in restaurants because of how um, quote unquote flamboyant they dressed and this is the biggest goddamn band at that time in the world so 
I can only understand so much. I didn't really, I never grew up in a place that was just that I noticed I was outright hateful towards any one group, but um, yeah, I got to imagine that that's just, that kind of punches you in the gut when, when you see someone just kind of seeming to not purposely do it, but just kind of stomp on hard work from so many people. Yeah. And, you know, it's just, I, I mean, everybody, I think it's important to, like, as Brian was saying, even at heart, it's important to know your history, where you came from. Um, and as a queer person, I, I mean, when I first came out, it was very important for me to study the history of the gay rights movement, for instance, um, because that was important to me to know what we had been through. And it helps you better face the obstacles we still have to come when you see where we've come from. Um, and it means to get into a big political queer, queer conversation, but, um, but yeah, oh, yeah. I, I do. That's important. And I, you know, that's a lot of people think because, you know, I do describe my work sometimes as queer that doesn't exclude heterosexual people from enjoying it. Um, I think that's a misconception that it can't be queer and universal at the same time. I think that's the important thing for people to learn is that because, you know, queer people throughout history, we've been learning to read and watch stories about heterosexual people and still, still relate to it. Um, and, you know, heterosexual people can do that for queer characters um, because I have had people tell me, you know, I, I have to give, for instance, straight males, somebody to relate to. And my thing is they can relate to the queer characters. It's that's how empathy works and reading to me is an empathetic activity um, because you're learning, you're putting yourself in someone else's shoes through that story. So um, I, I do think, you know, sometimes queer work is mistaken for being political because we're trying to reflect our lives um, in a way that not all straight people think about because it's not their daily lives. But I, I think it's still important to show that, you know, queer people don't just exist in stories that are queer focused. We can be in horror stories and comedies and, and all kinds of stories because, you know, I mean, really, I mean, we're everywhere. <laughs> Your people. Uh, Every time store, it's there's tons of us in there. <laughs> One of the smartest human beings, in my opinion, is he's the smartest person ever to exist is Leonardo da Vinci, and he was he was he was gay. He was a vegetarian. He's a lot of things that some people might not know, um, and he's responsible for shit. You name it, and he's probably done it. Um, and another one, uh, one of the greatest conquerors ever was alexander the great and he he was a gay guy too uh just the name too and it's it's crazy to think that like when i hear people that are just outright hateful towards certain groups they act like uh everything's been heterosexualized up until name a year whatever year they want to pick you know and it's just not true it's just they don't know and you don't know what you don't know but you should fucking open your ears up and listen a little bit you know um, so let's move on to the advantage because I really want to talk about that. Why don't you give us <laughs> audio listeners cannot see that cover, but we'll we'll <laughs> we'll go over that in a few. Um, why don't you give us a synopsis so I don't butcher it? Um, 
The Advantaged is a book. It's actually a, a coming of age novel um, set on a college campus. Uh, it sort of deals with issues of, you know, being outcast, um, friendship, deception. Uh, the, the main plot revolves around a young man who's, you know, had a very traumatic high school experience. He's very withdrawn. He's very um, almost traumatized from that experience. He is going to a tech school. The college he dreamed of going to, he likes to go and hang out on the campus um, just because it is beautiful. And while he's there one day, he ends up getting to a conversation with some students at that school who seem to accept him in a way he never has felt accepted. Um, they just naturally assume because he's there, he is also a student of that college. And because he thinks he's never going to see them again, and he's sort of enjoying the idea that they think he's one of them, he just lets them think that. Um, but then he ends up getting sort of interwoven with these people. He ends up sort of falling for one of them. And now he's trapped himself in this lie, and he's trying to find a way to get out of it while doing the least amount of damage possible. You know, uh, and like I told you, I, I finished this uh, earlier today, and I really did love it. Um, and for a while, I struggled with something, and I wasn't sure if I was going to bring it up on air or privately, but I feel like it's okay to bring it up on air. I figured, what the hell's the big deal? You're making a, you're putting a lot of pressure and emphasis on, it's basically the center of all it's 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 what causes all the issues and i struggled with figuring out or trying to realize why it was such a big deal for a while but then it kind of all made sense because you got to go back to realize his age he's what 18 19 and yeah i mean also when you because you know i grew up in the 80s gay in the south so um, I know the poor bastard. <laughs> I know the extent of how traumatic high school can be, and that kind of stuff leaves. I mean, you know, I'm 48 years old. I I still carry some of that with me. I mean, I've got not. I have a great life. I'm very happy, but you know, some of that is still with me because you know that it frustrates me when people talk about bullying and they're like, "Kids will be kids." Like, I mean, there's actual damage being done to people there. Yeah. And when you do get damaged in that way, it makes you, it makes it hard to trust other people. And then when you do get a taste of some sort of acceptance, you're so afraid it's going to go away. And so I guess that's what I wanted people to start to see as they read the book is that, you know, he's, he's deceiving these people, which is wrong. And it, it is wrong and he should be called on it. But I wanted the reader to be able to understand because of what he's been through, why this is so difficult for him. And I also wanted to talk in the book about how insidious deception can be. Like, you know, the idea of little white lies, but you know, those things can snowball until you've just gotten this huge, you know, thing of deception going on. So, you know, I thought that would be interesting to explore, too, that, you know, even when we think a lie is harmless, it can get us into greater and greater trouble. So and I also with this book, I wanted to write a book without the traditional antagonist paradigm. Like I wanted to write a book where hopefully the reader is going to like all the characters 
And even when they don't like a choice the character makes and they see them doing things that they shouldn't be doing, they can at least understand why. So, and I wanted the tension to come from that, from the fact that they care about all these characters and someone is bound to get hurt from the situation. And I, that's where I wanted the narrative uh, tension to come from. I didn't like Phil at first. And I don't like that because that's my son's name. So I, I try liking Phil's, but uh, <laughs> I ended up really liking the kid and I felt bad for him. And I thought it was really cool because I've heard, heard on um, other conversations where, you know, sometimes if someone were, if a writer were to do a coming of age story and it's just, there's something not connecting. Well, very likely could be that that writer just doesn't remember or cannot tap into, for whatever reason, the raw emotion, the raw feeling, you know, whatever, um, of when you were that age. You sometimes struggle to remember, for example, when I was 18, my first girlfriend, there were plenty of, like, gut feelings I said where I said, eh, I should probably not be with her. And it bit me in the ass in the end, but... I would have known that now, you know, if I was single or whatever, or when I was older, but as an 18 year old, that was the first girlfriend I had. There's, there's like kind of a blinders on. And that's definitely what was happening. And what I thought with, with your main character, Silas, what I thought was really cool. And tell me if I'm spoiling anything that you want, not spoiled, but I thought it was really awesome how you had basically everyone eventually come to terms with a maturity point where some are like, Oh, I can't be friends, but, and they were kind of, it was developing the character. It had an arc, not for one, two or three characters, but for many of them. And I don't see that in a lot of books, which makes sense because they just kind of had this lens of just focusing on this period of time. But it was a short period of time in this in this story, and yet there's still an arc there with at least six or seven characters, and I thought that was really cool. Uh, I appreciate that. That was one of my, um, I guess, if I want to say my biggest worry when I started writing it was because I did have so many characters, but I wanted them all to feel, well, I wanted them all to be very distinct and have their own personalities, but I all, I wanted the progression of them all to feel authentic. And I mean, to your point, I guess I do feel like, especially when you're that age thing, everything seems so intense. Everything seems so life or death. Um, and so that can lead to some very intense conflicts. And, but I find that, you know, over time, those things can mellow and you may never really be friends with that person again, but you can get to a point where it's not, where you recognize you did some things wrong. I did some things wrong. We don't have to carry this like torch forever. I did also, I wanted to keep one character um, at least that wasn't going to let go of it <laughs> because there are people like that too, who will carry something forever. But I, I wanted them all to feel authentic. And I mean, the way I write, I just kind of throw myself into it. I get to know the characters and then the story tells itself because as I put them in situations, I feel like I then know this is what these characters would do in this situation. 
And that helps me figure out the trajectory of the story. Yeah. Yeah. It was really, you know, what? like you just covered a lot of things that I thought was also wonderful about the book. How just covered, you know, a lot of books do this, but for this one, I just felt kind of special because you really just uh, had a time capsule of a period of uh, a college kid's life. And there's just so many emotions going on. And on top of that, uh, another aspect I thought was neat was with the father, Silas's father, how they live in a trailer. But, you know, like typically when you read stories with families and trailers, they're like cliched as trashy white trash, you know, and these guys were just the mom passed away. The father is just super like, dude, he's so cute. He's adorable. And Silas and Chris, um, the main character and his boyfriend, um, I kept telling you that they're adorable because they are, man. Like they, they're the kind of couple that, and, and talking to you about, you know, you and your husband, it sounds like they're like you guys. And it's just a kind of couple where I just kind of get like teary eyed because it's like pure love and it's just really refreshing. You see a lot of shit in the world, be on social media or news or whatever. And you just want to get purged with something adorable. And this book was it for me, man. Um, I want to hear I want to hear you talk about your husband and about Furman, because I know that means a lot to you. Um, well, my my husband, uh, Craig, I he's my best friend. We've been together, uh, been together over 10 years, um, married six. And um, I, I don't he's my favorite person. I just love to be with him. Uh, we you know, we're, we're that couple where every minute that we can spend together we're spending together because we genuinely like each other. Um, and we make each other laugh, which I always say is, you know, probably the secret to our relationship. We respect each other and we are constantly making each other laugh. Um, and you know, not all my, not all my books are so hopeful, (laughs) but I do think I have sort of noticed since I met him, I find that the romance if I have a book that has a romance in it, I feel like it's, to me, it feels more potent, more authentic than maybe the stuff that came before, because I feel like he's taught me what a great romance is. Um, and so when I, I write a book like this, or I had a book of, a few years ago called 324 Abercorn, that was a horror book, but it had a romance subplot. Um, I like to write them, create these characters that complement each other, that make each other laugh. And then I kind of fall in love with them falling in love. And then it's really fun for me to develop those relationships. Um, but yeah, and I always say my husband is my inspiration for everything just because he's, he's very encouraging. He's very supportive of my writing. Um, so I don't know. I feel like he's always kind of, with me on my shoulder, just inspiring me to work better, do better, work harder um, on my on my craft. That's a. It's probably because of how well we've gotten to know each other, but you don't have to answer this. But that's why I'm really hoping there's a sequel. 
because I want to see what happens. I want to know what's next with, with Silas and Chris. Um, and, and you could, you could just say, well, we'll never find out. And I, I mean, that that's my personal takeaway from it all. Well, I, I don't have any plans for a sequel, but I've never written a book or I plan for a sequel. And yet I do have some books that have sequels. So at some point, you know, if an idea comes to me, um, because, you know, my characters, I mean, feel very real to me, like not in a crazy way, but, you know, <laughs> when I'm writing them, like I know they're not real, but when I'm writing them, they feel very real to me. And so they linger with me. And then, you know, I may just years from now be thinking about those two and an idea of where they might be may pop up and, um, you know, and then I'll just go with it. That's how, that's how it usually happens. I've never, I've never purposely written a book already with the sequel in mind, but because the characters sort of live on for me, sometimes they happen. You know what? Um, I'm going to go on a limb and say that's exactly how Brennan felt about Slattery Falls 2 and 3 because it's, I know him pretty well and that's what it feels like anyways. Brennan, any comments or do you want me to keep going? I mean, you know I can't end a story definitively. I have to, you know, I don't think I've ever written a book or even a short story that doesn't have like some ambiguity at the end there. But yeah, you know, I just, I, no. I'm not going to steal the focus from Mark for, for long, I promise, but I just finished writing the acknowledgements for the second book. And it pretty much was exactly that. Like I didn't realize I missed these, these, these characters and they had so much more to say until I sat down to, uh, to, to see where they were going next. Mark, I want to hear about Furman, the college and the cover. Um, Furman uh, university, which is where the advantage is set is a real place. Uh, in Greenville, South Carolina. And um, I, I just so happens that I work there now. I'm, I'm a manager at the campus bookstore. But, um, but I mean, long before I worked there, my husband and I would go there a lot because it's a beautiful campus. There's a big lake that people has a walking trail around it. A lot of people from the community just go there. Um, and we actually got married there. We got married in the gazebo of the Rose Garden. Uh, that they have on campus. Um, uh, several years ago, I did a TED talk on the connection between empathy and horror. And that wait, what? I did not know that. <laughs> I'll have to send you the link. I'm very proud of it because it, it was the most frightening thing I ever did. But I, I feel like I got through it without. I have to see that. But um, but that was held at Furman, so I I already felt like I had this connection, and I started writing the book before I worked there because we are incredibly goofy and silly people. Sometimes when we were there, we would walk around talking like we were college kids, just like, you know, oh, I think I'm failing poli sci, you know, that sort of thing. And I, I made the comment that, you know, if we were a little bit younger, we might could pull that off and nobody would know we weren't students there. And <laughs> then that sparked the, the idea that became the novel. Um, and then when I did that TED Talk there and I met, they had some students who were working the crew for that. They were so dynamic and so passionate and so interesting. It kind of inspired me to take that idea and really go with it and make something of it. Um, and they helped me. They let me interview them for stuff because, you know, I haven't been in college in a gazillion years. So I knew it was, it's probably different now. So they helped me with that stuff. But um, 
And then I was about halfway through the novel when I started working at Furman. Um, I actually, my, my boss has a small cameo in the one scene that takes place in the bookstore. Um, and uh, I, 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 I do love that campus. And I, I always set my books in real locations um, that are local and usually places I love. And I kind of pour that love into the book when I'm writing them. And I wanted Furman because so much of the story is driven by the main character's desire to go to that school. I wanted to show how interesting and dynamic and exciting, you know, college life can be that would make him want to be part of that. So I, I almost wanted Furman to be a character um, in its own right. Am I mistaken or did that work its way at least partially into uh, When It Rains as well? Okay, yes. When It Rains <laughs> was originally set at Furman in the bookstore where I work. But because of the nature of the story, I kept changing geographical points. Um, like I, I need these two buildings to not be connected. I need the dorm to be somewhere else. So in the end, I decided not to call it Furman because I was changing so much. So I, I renamed it Friedkin University. I had to keep the F because I had an FU joke in there I didn't want to lose. But, um, but yeah, it started out in the actual store where I work and then it just became a fictionalized version of the store. That's funny. That's funny. What if one day Silas ends up working at that bookstore that you work at and does a TED talk? <laughs> wow. I mean, I, I can't be too. I always say the advantage is not autobiographical, but it's very personal in that a lot of what I feel and believe and it, it went into that. So, you know, Silas isn't me, but there's a lot of me in there. That's a great example of the book. There's just, uh, you know, just for listeners, not for, I know Mark, you know, you're not going to take this wrong way or, you know, whatever, because you know me, but it, it pisses me off. So I can't imagine how much it upsets you or some other gay writer friends that I hear that this won't be, you know, attracted for, you know, straight readers or whatever. I think that the advantage is a good example of, it's for everyone. It's simply a, a love story and it's, it's a coming of age story and it's really well done. Um, so for anyone on the fence of like, maybe I'm describing you and you want to give it a shot, start with the advantage. That's a great book. Um, Waylon, uh, Jordan, oh God, I messed his name up. Uh, Jordan Waylon, right? That's a flip flop his name. Uh, in my head sometimes. It's Jordan Whalen, right? I think it's Whalen Jordan. Uh, shit. Okay, my apologies. Um, yeah, it is Whalen Jordan. Yeah. Um, anyways, he has two books out. I don't know if the third one's out there. Um, I guess they'd be described as hot fantasy, but it's male on male, and it, it gets pretty detailed at times, but it's just so fucking good. I don't know if you guys have read it, but it's it's a fantasy where, you know, it's a lot of world building and there's really no discretion on, uh, or no hate towards, uh, same sex couples, except for like this one outcast, um, bad guy tribe. 
And I just thought that was really funny and reflective on our, our world. Um, Brennan, do you want to talk about Lucid? I do. And, you know, I was just going to throw out that uh, in regards to your point here, you know, Mark covered it a little while ago. He basically just threw out the word empathy, you know, and and I I was going to comment on that earlier, but what the hell comment on it now? You're absolutely right. You know, for, for people who might read uh, a story like the advantaged and say, well, you know, there's, there's, it's gay relationships. I can't, you know, commiserate with that. It's empathy. It's people. It's, yeah. I, I mean, that that's kind of the source of it. I don't feel like you need to go deeper. And if you are poo-pooing those stories because you, you know, are, are saying you can't connect with it on that surface level, it's there, there's an, I feel like there's a lot of times there's an attempt to actively not do that. Um, yeah. But yeah, Mark, you know, I, <laughs> go ahead. Yeah, I, I call my work queer because I want queer people out there who are hungering to see that representation. I want them to know you're going to find it here, but Mm -hmm. that does not mean that it's, you know, a completely different language that straight people won't understand. It's still human emotion. It's the same desires we all have. Um, So like I said, that's why I would say queer work is universal work. They're, they're not mutually exclusive. Um, So yeah. And again, like I said, I, part of the TED talk that I gave, the, the name of it is how watching horror movies taught me empathy. Um, because as a child growing up when and where I did, I wasn't seeing a lot of empathy. But, you know, storytelling is an empathetic act. You are getting into someone else's life. It can help teach you that skill. And so, you know, I think I'm always a big fan of reading diversely, reading books by people very different than you are because it helps you understand just other people better. Um, so, so yeah, I, I just think empathy is the key. Absolutely. All right, Mark, I want to make sure we dive into lucid and, you know, it's, it's interesting because we, we kind of almost classified the advantage uh, as a book about relationships and Lucid definitely is, but there's there's a certain isolation in there too. So I'm gonna I'm gonna put this on you to go ahead and give us a uh, spoilerish free synopsis of Lucid. Uh, Lucid's a, a very different kind of book. Um, it's it's a book that takes place almost entirely in dreams. Um, the the basic premise is there is a, a man who is a lucid dreamer. He can control his dreams. Um, and he has a life that he finds, let's just say, less than satisfactory. Uh, so he sort of created this dream world in his, this perfect world in his dreams that he can escape to, um, which kind of becomes a crutch. And you know, no matter what's going on in his life, he doesn't try too hard to fix it because he can always escape to this dream world. Um, but then he uh, ends up getting into an accident that puts him into a coma and he's sort of trapped in this dream world, which doesn't seem so bad at first. Uh, but then the dream starts to turn on him and he's got nowhere to go because he's sort of stuck in there with these figures in his dream that are now turned against him. Uh, so it's, it's kind of a fantasy. Um, and, you know, it, it was just such a weird experience, but in a wonderful way writing it because I wanted it to have sort of the disjointed, surreal nature of a dream. Um, since so much of it is about dreams. 
And the writing process was the most unstructured thing I'd ever done. Sometimes I would come in here and sit down with no idea what I was going to write that day. Like no idea what the scene was going to be. I would just start typing and see what happened. Um, and you know, that on the back end that required a little bit more editing, um, to make sure things aligned and sort of flowed smoothly. But like I said, I, I wanted it to have that weird, disjointed, surreal sense of a dream. Now, I, I think lucid dreaming is such a fascinating phenomenon. I'm curious what piqued your interest. And in regards to, I'd really love to hear you wrap this into kind of the free-flowing nature that you took a lot of the, the, the draft with, but um, the, kind of, the kind of research involved with this book. Well, I've also always been fascinated by lucid dreaming. I'm not a lucid dreamer. Um, I remember I had a friend when I was growing up who said she could lucid dream and it always just sounded so fascinating to me that she could just make decisions in her dream for things to happen. Um, because, I mean, dreams fascinate me anyway because it's like these weird stories our subconscious tells. Um, and, you know, sometimes they make absolutely no sense, but when you're in the dream, you don't recognize that. So talk about suspension of disbelief. <laughs> you, you, Sometimes you just, it makes sense though. Yeah. Like, so I'm fascinated by dreams, but lucid dreaming fascinates me because I love the idea that you could, and you know, I love the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, particularly the dream warriors where they sort of had their own dream powers where they could sort of control things to a certain degree. So, and the idea for the book actually came from I was reading a novella by someone and I was reading a dream sequence and, you know, there are always these rules that you'll see these, you know, articles like 10 things writers need to stop doing, um, which usually just means that's 10 things that particular article writer doesn't like. Um, but, you know, there's one that I see a lot is never start a story with a dream sequence. And I was thinking about that. And then I thought, what if the entire book was a dream sequence almost? Um, and then maybe I could start it with the one sequence that wasn't. And that was, that was the initial idea was like an entire book set in dreams. Um, and so then, because I am fascinated by lucid dreaming, I thought, okay, so I'm going to start with that. A lucid dreamer makes this perfect world that gets stuck in there. And then, like I said, I'm not much of an outliner anyway. Um, but I usually have some sort of roadmap in my head. Um, I don't always end up following it exactly, but I usually have one. But with this one, I basically just had a jumping off point and then I just jumped. I just started. And like I said, I, I kind of knew some of the places I wanted to get to, but I had no idea how I was going to get there. And like I said, on a day-to-day -day basis, usually when I finish my writing for the day, I kind of know what I'm going to start with the next day. But in this case, I'd finish a scene and then because the story also jumps back and forth in time a lot. Um, and there's a lot of flashbacks. So I would just sit down and think, what do I want to do today? With no real forethought. And then, you know, you know, I'm lucky that it, it did all sort of come together in the end. Um, and I, I think it tells a cohesive story, even in that, that dream framework. 
And, and, and I am a little bit stuck on the idea of you writing it as a, uh, as a middle finger to uh, people who say you can't start a book with a dream sequence. <laughs> Saying, okay, it doesn't start with a dream sequence, but the <laughs> other 95%. <laughs> yeah. I'm not a big fan of any statements when it comes to writing that start with never or always. Yeah. Yep. I'm like, I just, I see those and I'm like, I get it. That means that you, the person who wrote this article, you don't like those things and that's valid. We all have our particular tastes and likes and dislikes. But to say, like, writers need to never do this thing because I don't like it, you know, mm -hmm. it's a little egotistical. As a reader, <laughs> I, I accept the fact that I don't have to be every writer's target audience. Just because they are writing things that don't particularly appeal to me doesn't make them less valid. I'm, I'm a big cheerleader. I mean, probably to the point of being annoying online, but I, I believe in celebrating all writers, even the ones that I don't like personally, like their work doesn't appeal to me personally. I'm still so excited that work exists because there are people out there that do want it. And that person's doing what they're passionate about. So why, why does it matter if it's not my personal taste? That's a little side note. And I, I talk with my hands a lot, but that's because I'm gay and that's part of my culture. But Are you Italian? Um, no, it's, it's a gay thing. Oh. Um, <laughs> I see Italians doing it too. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so I, I do believe that, you know, all those things where they say never do this, never do that. I'm like, I almost think anything can be done if you do it well and thoughtfully. Um, sure. so maybe don't do it badly, but yeah, come up with a fresh, exciting way to do it and then go with it. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that, um, in phrasing it that exact way, it really does come off as I don't Office. like this. So I'm going to use my platform to say, don't do it when, you know, it, it, if it's your firm belief that like it's overdone in, you know, a certain genre or it is easy to do poorly because, that you know come out and say that but now now we're both on soapboxes so i'm gonna steer us back um so all right i want to ask you a question and i would love for you to answer it but if it delves too far into spoiler territory patrick will cut it i still want to hear the answer so um that's my cut around fart <laughs> around 25 percent, 30 percent into the book it takes this hard turn into questions of ethics and morality that I found absolutely fascinating. And I wondered what kind of spurred that on. I mean, really, it just sort of organically happened. Because, like I said, I, I didn't have a real roadmap when I started. I just wanted to see where it would take me. Um, and once I started, and I put it started putting the characters into these situations, I realized, oh, these are the ramifications of what's happening. Um, if, if this is what this character is doing and this character doesn't, like, like I don't want to get too spoilery either, but, <laughs> it's I, hard, I, but... <laughs> I realized when I started creating that part of the book that I'm like, this is, this is a really sensitive subject because he's treading this line just because he's in a dream is it still you know 
ethical what he's doing. And, you know, then I'm like, well, I can't, now that I recognize this, I can't not acknowledge it in the narrative itself. Mm-hmm. Like, if I recognize it, the character has to recognize it. And then there has to be some discussion on that. And that actually has to now become part of the story because it would, it would be almost irresponsible of me to introduce that and then not really deal with what it means. So for people who haven't read the book, that might not just make any sense. So now you need to go read it. (laughs) So you know what I'm talking about. Oh, I, I, I think that's a great selling point is the, uh, the conversations and the, uh, you know, offshoots into uh, morally gray territory. I mean, to me, it, that's that's kind of what makes this book, because once it takes that turn, everything becomes very, very interesting, considerably even more interesting from there on out, because the stakes just change. Again, it's I, I call it a hard turn because that's it, it just it really just throws everything for a loop. And I think that I took your vague speak and I think I'm compounding on it. So I'm, I'm just going to leave this line of questioning with saying uh, the book is out now as you listen to it. <laughs> it's out through Valhalla and you should absolutely read it. Um, one thing I, 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 I also wanted to ask you as far as you, you know, every time we have you on, we manage to somehow get into you putting yourself into your books in some way or form. Um, (laughs) Rude. Um, (laughs) But I, I I wonder if, you know, you, you talk about a lot in this book about, you know, Jimmy's kind of high school experience and wanting to escape it. Um, And as a gay man growing up in the South in the 1980s, is, is a lot of that kind of pulled from your real life experience? Um, I mean, it is. I mean, Jimmy is a very different person than me. Um, we took our experiences and went in completely different directions with them. Um, but the, but yeah, I mean, you know, as I talked about with the advantage, high school was very, very rough for me. Um, I usually describe it as traumatic. It was not, um, anything there was no like i do not get people where high school was their golden years i'm like more power to you but we were on different paths um so yeah so you know a lot of that did go into this book because a lot of that informed the person he became because you know it's almost like a but for the grace of god sort of situation like i had a really rough time but you know luckily i i found some good friends um college was a much better experience for me um, and helped me gain a lot of confidence back and um, develop some social skills that I did not develop in high school. And um, so it, it, it sent me on a more positive trajectory, but you know, that doesn't happen for everyone. Sometimes that stuff can really cripple you um, and just start compounding. And I wanted to explore that side because you know that is a reality for a lot of people too who have that those sorts of experiences and so i definitely put a lot of that in there and i jimmy isn't always what i would call the most likable character but i think a lot of times when i hear people say oh i can't relate to that character because they're not likable I mean, the, the fact of the matter is all of us at some times in our lives 
aren't terribly likable. And we don't always want to admit that. So I feel like sometimes that's the big pushback from unlikable characters is that sometimes maybe more than we want to admit, we can at least a little bit relate to them. (laughs) So, but like I said, if I have somebody like that, I want to give you the understanding of this is what led to how he is now. Um, Not that, you know, not that Jimmy doesn't have redeeming features and, um, I, I, I do, I, I like him as a character because I, I can understand him and the journey that he goes on to get to where he is at the end of the book. But, um, but yeah, I definitely through a lot of my own sort of high school turmoil, um, growing up gay in the South in that time period and put that into the book. Yeah. The, you know, the one last thing I want to throw out to sell people on it is you mentioned that it definitely fits to a degree into the realm of fantasy. Um, and a lot of the scenes you crafted, places that Jimmy uh, kind of creates in his dreams are just so wonderfully described. I couldn't help but thinking when I was reading it, um, you know, they used to say that Stephen King's The Dark Tower was like unfilmable. And I, I don't see how, I don't know how this comes off as a compliment. Maybe it doesn't, but I just, I remember reading the book thinking this book is unfilmable. Um, or at least, you know, not, not without copious amounts of, of CGI, but there's just so much, there's so many like big breathtaking scenes um, that you conjure in the imagination to really sell this dream world. And I thought it was very, very nicely done. Well, thank you. And that, that was something I did want to, because, you know, dreams can be limitless. So I wanted to have some sequences that were just big and, you know, we, we can go visit the lost city of Atlantis if we want to. Um, there, you know, Poseidon can come up out of the ocean if he needs to. And then I also had fun doing things like since he was creating this world, you know, taking images from popular culture and, you know, having, you know, his dream kitchen looked like the kitchen from family ties or, you know, <laughs> like that. It's, you know, it's, it's a dream world. I wanted to do a mix of a lot of different things because, you know, some dreams can be, you can have dreams that are very mundane and you're just at the grocery store. Um, and that then you can have these amazing dreams where just there are limitless possibilities. So I, I did want to get that in there and um, I really appreciate, appreciate that. Right. I'd like uh, to hear about the article that you sent us, the one talking about Clive Barker. Well, I mean, Clive Barker is a hero of mine as a storyteller and as a gay man. Mm-hmm. And um, I know around his birthday, um, they were looking for articles because it, it was right around the time that, you know, the new Hellraiser was coming out and there were a lot of people, you know, talking about, you know, it had gone too woke and was getting too queer uh, with the trans actor. Uh, they really and, did turn that very straight story into, a, you know, queer yeah. thing. That's messed so, up. Man. Yeah. <laughs> For those that don't understand the sarcasm, the story uh, Hellbound Heart is super queer in all the ways beyond saying, hey, this is about queer people. Yeah. So, you know. I wanted to write something sort of a love letter to Clive Barker Mm -hmm. um, and about how much he had influenced me. I mean, his fiction influenced me because it was bold 
and fearless and unlike anything I had ever read. But, you know, I talked about how when I grew up, I never saw gay people reflected in the horror genre unless it was like as a joke um, That's sad, or man. something. That's yeah. fucked up. And so, you know, I, when I started writing horror, I never wrote queer characters because I, from what I could see, that wasn't allowed. That wasn't something you could do. And I still remember it was an, it was an article in the advocate. Um, they did a, an interview with Clive Barker. And that was the first time I ever saw him publicly acknowledge that he was a gay man. Um, and I know people have since told me, well, everyone in the industry knew. Well, I wasn't in the industry. I was living in Gatton, South Carolina. <laughs> I, I had no idea. And he talked about it so casually in the article. Um, and he talked about how he felt it actually drove his creativity. And, you know, that was such a big moment for me because I'm like, here's a very prominent, well-known writer-director who's published by a major publishing house. And he's just, he's just being open with it. And then shortly after that, he released a book called Sacrament, which had a gay protagonist uh, in a major mainstream horror novel. Um, and not only was the character gay, but so much of that book dealt with the sort of gay experience at that time, um, particularly in the time of, you know, the height of the AIDS crisis. And, you know, it just, it made me realize I almost immediately started writing stories about queer people because it was like it opened a door for me that made me realize there is a place at the table. And it helped me because when I started publishing, I did meet some publishers that thought, no, we can't publish anything with queer characters because our straight readers won't read it. And it helped me, you know, not doubt that this is what I should be doing. Um, and then, of course, I met many wonderful publishers who are completely open um, to that. But, you know, Clive Barker really gave me a lot of strength and courage because he was so strong and courageous and still is. Um, he's just an icon to me. So I, I wrote that article um, that appeared in the Ginger Nuts of Horror just to express how much that meant to me and how much that helped me as a storyteller and as a gay man. It's awesome. I really hope that, you know, that helps you in one person that might be struggling. Um, I know you do it for, your, I'm assuming for yourself. That's why I do it, the writing thing. But uh, that'd be really cool if you found out if that helps someone down the line, man. Uh, let's jump to where can people follow you? Uh, I'm in all the traditional places. I'm on Facebook, Mark Allen Gunnels. I'm on Twitter at Mark A. Gunnels. I'm on Instagram as Make Reading Cool Again, where I just post pictures of books. Uh, I have not joined the TikTok revolution. Um, <laughs> so I'm not there, but uh, I have an Amazon author page. I have a very sporadically updated blog at markgunnels.livejournal.com live journal that tells you how you know <laughs> hip and with it i am right now but um but yeah but you know i'm i'm most active probably on uh, facebook and twitter and i'm always talking about my books and books by other people and books i love and books people should be reading so if you love books come on in you know what uh, my wife asked me um 
who do you have on every now and then? And she asked today and I told her you. And when I told her your surname, she's like, oh, no, I've never heard that one before. I stopped and thought about it and I haven't either. Gunnels, what, 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 uh, what's that background, man? Um, I'm not, I'm not going to lie. I don't really know. I'm not, I haven't done much, you know, looking into my past. Um, um, I think maybe it's a German derivation. Um, but not a hundred percent sure. There, there are some other gunnels around the area where I live, but there's like two camps. There's the gunnels with two L's and then there's the gunnels with one L and we're, we're we're a different tribe, but we're both guns. But um, it, it is. I'm most most people pronounce it gunnels, and I've just learned to accept it. <laughs> but but yeah, it's not the most common name. But I'm not entirely certain where it comes from. Okay, what are you currently reading? Uh, I just today finished Fairy Tale by Stephen King, um, and I started Black Cardinal by Robert McCammon. And because I'm always reading print book and a digital book, I just finished uh, some Sapphire Sunset by Christopher Rice and Rice's son. Um, and I am now reading a Halloween novella called Hell Night and Hopewell by Wofford Jones. What do you think about Fairy Tale? I, I haven't read, by the way. Brennan has. I, I, it looks amazing, but I just I can't keep I can't add I any like, more books. It feels a little bit like two books that were sort of stitched together. Really? And I did kind of like the first book a little more than the second book, but I liked both books. <laughs> but um, I mean, it takes a turn um, about halfway through and like, it does almost become like a completely different book. But like I said, I like, I like both of them. Brandon, what are you currently reading? I am reading... Oh, I have The Good House by Tanana Reeve Dew going. Um, and I'm still pretty early on in that one. Um, but, you know, the one thing that grabbed my attention right off the bat is um, <laughs> when I started writing, I used to sometimes do uh, this device that I would see King use every once in a while, where you almost kind of forecast what you're going to do. Like, oh, you know, it was the last time, you know, he would ever see her or whatever. And it's hard to do well because it's just obnoxious. And she does this in the opening chapter and she does it so fucking skillfully. Like, I, I don't think I've ever seen anybody do it quite like that because all it does, all it serves to do is ramp up the tension in that opening chapter to this like unbearable degree and then, you know, fireworks. Um, yeah. it, what an opening. Um, and like I said, I'm going, I'm, 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 I'm working very slowly through it cause I'm reading like 30 other things at the same time, but I'm loving it so far. Uh, she is, she's so good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Excited to have her on um, last night. Mr. Glowbones by Ronald Kelly. Cause as we record this, it is October 27th and I needed some Halloween short stories. Um, Patrick, you'll appreciate this. Just before we got on tonight, I was reading the story Pins and Needles. You remember that one? You got to remind me, man, because at this point, I've read so oh, many man, that's short the one stories. With the guy who, that's the one with the guy who shoves razors into candy bars. Ah, uh, yep. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's a tough one. That's <laughs> Yeah, that got me. That was the opener for um, 
Oh my god, dude! Please help me. Essential out. six stuff. Yeah, Christ. Yep. Yeah. So what am I reading? <laughs> yeah, that one got me. That one got me real good. It's weird, like reading certain types of horror, you know, whatever story it is. In our case, horror. And then you just talk to the creator, and you're like, "Huh, it's very interesting." How you can be so nice and sweet and stuff, but like write something so sick. And it's not a knock and Ron or anyone that does, I do that shit. I don't mean all of us here do that, but it's just really interesting how different they are. Um, I just started Wayward by Chuck uh, Wendig today, and I'm, I haven't gotten too far into it, but for those that may not know, it is the sequel to his book that came out two years ago, I think. Was Wayward out in 2020? I want to say Wanderers came out. I think that came out before the pandemic hit. That might have been 2019. Okay. So it's a sequel to Wanderers. Um, I think a good comparison would be Swan Song or or The Stand. It's just in both page count and um, uh, epicness. And I, I really loved uh, wanderers um i'm too far i mean i'm too early in i'm only two percent in for wayward so i can't really say this or that on it but i'm enjoying it um and then another one to keep going back and forth have to pause it a few times just because i gotta catch up with the guest that we got on is um wiley young's upcoming book i'm not even gonna pretend i remember the title i forget but it's the sequel to uh the black magpie which um that first one was an incredible western novella um second one is for a few souls more thank you uh mark do you have any final thoughts fart sounds or, or uh, uh i think i'm refrain from that but <laughs> he he he's much more classier than than i or, or Brennan. i i just always you know encourage people to go out there find the books that you leave that you love uh, celebrate them, um, celebrate writers, uh, write your, your own stories, uh, follow your passions. We're talking about um, Ann Rice's son, Christopher Rice, how he's carrying out his mother's work, right? Um, I mean, I know r- right after she died, he had, before she died, they had written a book together. Mm-hmm. And then shortly after she died, um, they released another book they had completed together. Um, I don't know if he's going to continue it from there. I know before she died in interviews, when they started collaborating together, she said her hope was that he would at least continue that mummy series. Mm. Um, even, you know, after she was gone, but I don't, he hasn't said anything to indicate whether he will or not. Um, but I mean, he writes all kinds of things. He writes mysteries. He, the one I just read was a, a full on romance novel. Um, he's written horror novels, so you know he, he's got a lot of irons in the fire. I think it's okay to say this, and Brennan, correct me if I'm wrong, but we were talking. I won't name them, but we were talking to a friend that was friends with Anne Rice and said that uh, he's like, I could have got her on your show, you know. I'm, no one asked her though because they're all intimidated. And had I known that, <laughs> we we would have had her on like two years ago. Uh, that that just that was one of those moments where I'm like. I wouldn't even thought to ask this one person that um, because we weren't in that, we weren't at that place at at that time until recently where I would even ask if like, Hey, maybe you can get this person on. But like, that would have been cool. Cause Anne Rice is one of the, 
her, Joyce Carol Oates, Margaret Atwood, like those are all women that you would want to talk to and pick their brain because it was just a boys club back then. Be really interested to see what they would have to say. Um, Brennan, any final thoughts? No, I mean, just Mark, we appreciate your time. We both love you to death. We think you're a great dude. And uh, any excuse we can get to get you on here to chat horror for a little bit, you, we will we will jump that every time. So thank you for coming on. Thank you. I'm always game. I echo that. And uh, Mark, you're very prolific. I don't know how the hell you write so much, but uh, <laughs> maybe maybe you can have my kid for a little bit and I can get some writing done. <laughs> I mean, it does help that I don't have kids. I won't lie. <laughs> uh, listeners, next episode is 171. With, wow, that was weird. Uh, next episode is episode 171 with Chuck Wendig. I just realized that. Like, look, if I go this way with my voice, I project it to the side. Do you notice the difference? 170 episodes. You don't figure out how the damn microphone works. Ah, there's different <laughs> settings. I don't touch them ever. <laughs> We're going to have Chuck Wendig on. Next, followed by Tanana Review. Cannot wait for those two that rhymed. Haha. <laughs> okay, listeners, you have many choices of podcasts. <laughs> Thank you for picking us. Brennan just, he's going to get sick and tired of me one day with these <laughs> stupid fucking jokes. That's a wrap. Uh,